Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church again. My name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. A warm welcome to you. If you haven't been around in a while or haven't been here before, we're, we're actually just past the halfway mark in our series, The Gospel According to Jonah. And in that, one of the things we've been doing each week is considering a principle for how to be better readers of the Bible and then putting that principle to work in this little book. If you haven't missed, if you've missed some, the, there's handouts in the back. All the, um, the, the sermons are online. You can, you can catch up. I'd commend those to you. Not so much even for this little book, but, but just for the, the ability uh, to grow in your ability uh, to read the Bible. And so far, we've looked at, at five of those uh, principles. We've looked at a principle called stop and listen, staying on the line, traveling instructions, asking good questions, and understanding genre, all of which have helped us see that the the, the book of Jonah is really about the gospel, insofar as it, it, it tells the story of God's heart and how far God will go for the godless. First, about how far God will go, about God's heart for, for godless sailors, And then after that, for a godless nation. But then beyond just the the sailors and and the nation we're going to encounter a little today, that this little book tells us about God's heart for God's godless prophet. Which is an amazing thing. An amazing comfort for those of us who find ourselves too often in a similar position. This is really about the gospel. Something we've seen as each of these principles has further gotten us into the details of this story and enabled us to hear what God is saying through it. And and today we're going to go one step further as we spend our time considering a sixth principle called seeing structure. That that might not sound too exciting, but at least in my opinion, this is the one that usually cracks open the Bible for me. And I hope you see that as we we put this principle to work, picking up in the story in Jonah chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there to Jonah chapter 3, and you could follow along with me as I read verses 1 to 10. Again, Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, this is God's Word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. 
They called for a fast and and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today as we, we come to this moment when your, your man finally proclaimed your message, I, I, I pray that we would hear that message for ourselves. That we would be reminded of where we come from, of, of where we were, of where some of us still are. And of that invitation to turn back to you and, and how amazing it is. That the invitation comes because you first turn to us. In the preaching of your word. In the coming of your son. And we're ultimately willing to turn from, from exacting on us the disaster that we deserved so much because you turned it on him. May we hear the message again and and hear it so deeply that we become its heralds all the more. For the fame of your Son, through the the spread of your word, I pray. Amen. One of my most formative memories is of a canoe trip I took when I was 18 years old. I organized it. I, I invited some friends on it. We got dumped up um, on the north uh, part of the, the Delaware River. It slowly made our way down the Delaware uh, to where my grandparents had a house. And we were 18-something, except for my little brother. I brought him along. He was 12 at the time. 18-something, had nothing to lose, invincible as ever. And we spent the entire trip looking for bridges to climb to the top of and jump. I don't know why. It's just what we were doing. Everyone we could find. We were jumping before we tested the water, before, we, before we, we even looked. Just climb up the bridge, jump off. Heard rumors that people had done it before. So that's what we did. Floating down the Delaware, looking for every bridge in sight, climbing to the top and jumping off. It climaxed in uh, 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 an abandoned railroad bridge. 
that, that you had to climb the trusses of to actually get to the top 90 feet above the water. So that when you, you jumped and you finally hit the water, you had bruises for a month. I don't know why. It's just what we were doing. But for all the bridges that we, that we climbed up on that trip and, and got halfway to the middle, sometimes not even halfway to the middle, for all the bridges we climbed up, we never made it to the other side. The structure of the bridge never served the purpose of getting us from one side to the other, of getting us from where we were to where we want or should have wanted to go. Now, it was Jersey on the other side, so where we should have wanted to go. Sometimes, though, for all that it brings, jumping off a bridge and not knowing where you're jumping, we put ourselves in a much greater danger when that's how we put the Bible to use. Ignoring the the structure of whatever passage, whatever book is in front of us, however the author organized it, just jumping off wherever we want, sometimes not even looking where we're going, not even knowing what's on the other side, just irregardless of how the author has set this up to be read. Today, this principle of seeing structure is hopefully going to bring us back, at least when it comes to the Bible, of seeing structure for what it is and what it's meant to do so that we go where the Bible means to lead us. And I have to put a little disclaimer in here for the artistic ones among us. Who's the artistic ones among us? Is your brain more artistic? Go ahead. It's not a bad thing. It's okay. But you have to know this is probably going to be the hardest one for you to get through. Because as artists, we like to jump. We love jumping. We love it, and yet, and yet, what we're called to as artists under God is to an artistry of coloring in the lines. There's still art in that. There's still still emotion, reflection. There's still that dynamic of being a a creative person, a creative member. But we're called to under God an art of coloring in the lines. Because God's the one that does the real creating. And we create after him in his likeness. So it's hard, though, because in our fallen state, we like jumping off bridges every direction there is. This, though, is important. And so just follow. Next week, we get back into the emotion of 
of especially Jonah. There's some here. There's enough here. But the principle itself, just follow, because it's, it's like this architect engineering kind of thing. And it's just a little cold for some who are a little more warm-blooded than others. So if you have a bulletin, take out this insert, seeing uh, structure. Let's just start with the, the question, what is structure? And, and, and what you have to understand is that the structure of a book of the Bible in, in general or, or of a certain passage in particular is simply the way that book or passage is organized around what we could call its main idea. And the way in which that, that, that book or passage drives in a certain direction, meant to, to take you from where you are to where you're supposed to be. That, that every book of the Bible, and, and by implication every passage of the Bible, is organized in a particular way in order to make a particular point about a particular subject. Not every part of the Bible speaks to everything. It has a main idea. And that it's organized in that way, around that main idea, and the way that it is, in order to elicit a particular response. What you might call the direction it's driving. To get you from here to where it wants you to go, to where you're supposed to be. So, so there's two aspects to structure you need to be aware of when you, when you come to the text. First, you need to be aware of its parts of its parts, the, the parts of a passage which contain the, the major ideas that support the passage's main idea, the parts. And second, then you need to be aware of, you need to be aware of the connections that hold the whole thing together, the relationship between those parts, right? And, and if you need an image, you can think of that bridge where, where, where the, roadway is, the roadway is the main idea, the direction it's driving, which is supported by the, the pillars or the, 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 main, uh, the major ideas of the text. And then the whole thing is held together by the, that steel framing, the cables, the relationship between those parts, how they're tethered to, to one another tied in to what comes before, to what comes after, but supported up. And there's, in that little picture at the top corner of your insert, there, there's two of those, right? But, but, but the bridges could have three, four, right? And, and some bridges maybe will be a different sort of bridge, right? There are no cables. There's just the, 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 the major ideas, and, and the whole thing is supported on those with very little explicit relationship between the two, right? Or, or you, could have, you could have passages when you really get into it, right, like the Tappan Zee Bridge. Anybody driven across the Tappan Zee Bridge? This is a famous bridge in New York, yeah? It spans the, one of the widest, one of the widest um, divides in the Hudson River. And it goes for, for, for 
almost three whole miles as just a, 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 a bridge on the pillars, right? There is no structure around it. There is no um, relationship other than the road going from one to the next. But you get to the end, and they needed to get a certain amount of height so that, 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 that the freighters could make their way under, and so that it changes right at the end on one side of the bridge from this, this beam bridge to, to this sort of suspension-like bridge. And you can have that, right? Going along in a passage, all of a sudden the structure changes, right? You're into the next part, and, and it has its own relationship. And it's, it's important to be aware of that. Why? Because it'll tell you whether you're headed towards the end and you're just going to fall off the bridge, right? You made a wrong turn when, when bridges are supposed to go straight. And you know that, that that's not what you're supposed to do. And you're not supposed to jump off either, right? So get the idea. This is what structure does for us. Different types of bridges, different sorts of bridges, different relationships between the parts. It's just recognizing how the author has laid it out. But like every bridge, the structure has one purpose. What? To get you from where you are to where the author wants you to be. Where God wants you to be. Because bridges aren't primarily for taking pictures of. They're not primarily for jumping off of, whether that's for fun or otherwise. Sometimes the same result, right? Bridges are for getting you from where you are to where you're going. And without this, without seeing the structure for what it is, you may not get there, which is why then seeing structure is important, right? Because seeing structure in, in a book or a passage helps us identify the, the parts of the whole in order to understand how the author develops the passage's main idea. And then gets you into the meaning to understand what's being said through that. All right, that's the technical side. That's the, that's the technical side. Just, being, just having a vision that authors write in particular ways. They're meant to pick up on that. Don't just rip something off, go, go, go flying off the side with that. That's not good. That's not good for you. That's not good for the text. Those are the details. How then, though, do you identify the structure of a passage? And I want to do this by jumping into Jonah 3, okay? We're going to do this like I would do this if I'm sitting at my desk with my Bible trying to, to, to understand what's in front of me, okay? So we're going to do this together. So open up your Bible again. We're going we're gonna to have our noses in this for a while. And let me say that, that first, the first of, of the five steps to, to identifying the structure of a passage is to look for, for patterns or shifts in thought. Because authors use patterns to highlight those major ideas and then shifts in thought to show you that you're, you're changing from one to the next, that, that, that you're going somewhere, that you're developing, you're, you're moving across that bridge. So, so you've got to look for patterns and, and shifts in thought and should keep your eyes out, especially for things like repetition, repeating. If a word shows up all the time, it's probably important. Repetition, progression, the development of a theme, an idea, a, a story. Contrasts and comparisons. Not this, but that. Do this like that. 
Look for how a passage begins and how it ends. Authors are really good at introducing you to an idea early on and closing it out at the end. So be aware. And then look for key transitions or summary statements that sort of sum up the whole thing along the way. And you can look for other clues like direct commands. If an author turns away from what they're talking about and addresses you directly, it's probably important. So direct commands, be aware. Or for a story like we're in in the book of Jonah, look especially for its climax and resolution. Right? Those are important parts of any story. You don't want to stop midway through and draw all of your attention there and make like that's the most important thing. So look for the climax and resolution. And then also look for when an author raises a question and then answers it because he's raising a question he thinks you ought to have or somebody does have and then providing the answer so you don't get locked down in that and use that as your jumping off point. These are the, the clues along the way that highlight the major ideas. So, so what do you see in a chapter like Jonah 3? What do you see in a chapter like Jonah 3? Probably worth noting that the whole scene is a repetition, right? From where? From previously in the book, right? We already heard God speak. He already told Jonah to go to Nineveh. This is all old news. But he has to say it a second time. Why? Because the time that Jonah spent in the whale wasn't enough. He wanted to go to the temple, right? No, go to Nineveh, just like I told you, go to Nineveh. Now, along with the repetition, though, there's a little bit of a contrast here, right? Because where Jonah didn't go first, now he goes. And that's good. Don't make too much of it. Jonah didn't have many options here. We'll get to that later, right? He knew what would happen if he didn't go. But at least there's a contrast. Yet, yet all of this doesn't really get us into to this passage yet as much as it, it connects it with the other passages in the book. It's a contrast nonetheless, though. Probably, though, most helpful when you're trying to identify where are the markers here, like cluing me into what's happening, probably most helpful is to notice those story elements that are, that are typical to a narrative like this. Do you remember what they are? So the ones that are named on the page, right? There's the climax and the resolution. What are the other ones? We talked about two a, a, a couple weeks ago. We talked about the setting. Usually get that, the laying of the stage. And then the rise in action or the rise in conflict. The climax and the resolution, those are the important parts. Why? Because the climax tells you how the conflict has been addressed and then after that, the resolution actually usually clues you into the significance of the story beyond that. But the setting and the rise in conflict is important to know there's no real story without that. And so when you get to a passage like this, you're in the middle of narrative, back in the narrative, right? After chapter 2 and the, the poetry of his prayer. Now we're moving again. So look for these things. And this ends up being one of the keys to unlocking the structure of this passage. And with this lens, you begin to see that. The structure comes into focus. So you move on then to the second step of dividing the passage into its various parts. You could do this with a notebook. You can do this with any passage of the Bible. 
It's, a, it's like a first step to understanding, oh, that's really where you're going. So you divide up the various parts. First, what do you got? You got the setting, right? That the, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again saying, go. And, and what does Jonah do? He goes. Any conflict yet? No, that's a good thing. Why? Because this part of the story really isn't about Jonah anymore. He's obeying. That's good. That's great. We'll learn out. We'll learn later. All the issues haven't been taken care of. But at least he's going, and, and, and this is really not about him anymore. Not at this point. So the setting of this scene goes all the way to the middle of verse 3. No conflict yet. All the way, and the heart of it is this commission. Go, call out against the Ninevites the message that I tell you. God says go, Jonah goes. The conflict begins to rise, though, when the scene shifts to that city. That word now in verse 3, right in the middle, what you could call 3B, that, that's sort of the, the transition word. That's the clue you in, right? Okay, now we're going to move on to something. Now, now, as this great city comes into view. And the conflict is what? Oh, there it is. Yet 40 days and you will be overthrown. Sounds pretty conflicted to me. Sounds like conflict. This is the problem of this chapter. 40 days and you're done. It's like the, the mic drop of the millennium, right? Jonah wanders into this city, doesn't even get all the way. You're done. Poof. Right? This is the conflict. Boom. Just five words. 40 days and kiss it goodbye. And then there's the climax. Where again, the conflict is addressed. And how is it addressed here? Look at verse 5. It says, The people of Nineveh believed God. And the climax continues to rise from there, doesn't it? It doesn't really stop. This, this idea that, 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 that they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. It's really just a summary statement that, that's filled out in verses 6 to 9. From the greatest to the least, which, which the next thing you're reading about is that word reached the king. And he's the one saying, everybody, stop what you're doing. Put an end to it. Right now, we got something more important that needs to happen. All the way from the, the king to the cows. You gotta tell yourself, like, really? The cows? One of the cows need to put on sackcloth more. This is like that uncomfortable stuff just to show God how uncomfortable we are in our situation. What do the cows need that for? And crying out, too. They're included in that. The cows are going to cry out mightily to God. They come back up in the, later in the story. God cares about the cows. But interesting, right? From the greatest to the least. From the greatest to the least. Why? Because verse 9, who knows? 
God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The climax of the story. Setting, conflict, climax, and then there's the resolution that tells us the story's significance. In verse 10, this is what it reads. When, when God saw that what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Not to suggest that God's word does not stand, but to say that all words of judgment until that final judgment is spoken over someone's life, that in this life, all words of judgment, no matter how seemingly sealed, come with an escape clause. Not for God, as if he won't keep his end of the bargain, but for us. But for us. That if we turn to God, God in his very nature will turn from exacting on us the punishment we so deserve. The punishment he's declared is coming unless the equation changes. The point of the picture then, the the nature of the narrative then, the, the significance of the story then is not about how much God's word fails to accomplish his ends but about how much God's Word, despite the failures of the one delivering it, succeeds. Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And all of Nineveh believed. And God relented of the disaster. A lot of hope sitting there, even working in this, thinking about standing here, that despite the failures of the one who delivers it, God's word doesn't fail. That's the basic outline of the text. So we've seen, first, the the shifts in thought. Second, divide in the passage accordingly. Now it's time, third, to just go one step further to describe the major ideas. What holds each part together? to summarize them in a a single sentence, sometimes a single phrase, to capture that. And at this point, if I were working through this on my own or we were sitting together over coffee trying to dissect this and figure out what's being said to us right now, I think I'd describe it like this. Verse 1 to the first half of verse 3, the setting is telling again of God's command to Jonah. Pretty simple, right? God's command to Jonah. The second half of of 3 to the end of verse 4, the the rise in action, the rise in conflict, Jonah's condemnation of this great city. Mic drop. Yet someone unexpectedly, verse 5, all the way to verse 9, the climax tells us of the city's repentance of what verse 8 calls, they're turning away from evil. And then verse 10, the resolution tells us finally, God's relenting of God's turning away from disaster. So God's command, Jonah's condemnation, Nineveh's repentance, 
God's relenting. Which means at this point, having understood the parts, we can then turn attention to the relationship between the parts. Because you don't want to just take one of those out, make that your thing, right? As if this is about, like, we should go proclaim 40 days and you're overthrown. Judgment's a part of this, but it's to a particular end, right? And God uses it to a particular end. So, so having seen the parts, now we can work on, on really solidifying the relationships uh, between the whole, and specifically the connections between these parts. It makes it into a whole. We can finally ask, what type of bridge are we looking at? Is it one of those suspension bridges with all the wires? This part's connected all the way over there to the other part, and then that part's connected all the way back? Well, it doesn't seem so. I think as best as I can tell, and especially in narrative like this, you don't have the, the, the explicit relationships that you have in like an epistle or a prophetic oracle where somebody's sort of laying out an argument, going to walk you through it. You ain't going to miss a beat. This is more just meant you follow along one to the other. You're almost jumping, right? And so, so, so the relationships are more implicit. They're more like the relationships of narrative. It's just developing, and you're just following it. One part simply sets up the other. That this scene is about, when you look at it, a radical command expressed through, through a radical condemnation. But that behind the, the radical condemnation, 40 days and kiss it goodbye, is an implicit call to a radical repentance. Which results, wonder of wonders. Not because it has, has to, in any shape or form, or God's forced into it, but because of the type of God he is, results in God's radical relenting from carrying out the ruin we so rightly deserve. And radical, I think, seems to be the right word for this. To, to hold this whole thing together. Uh, a radical command where God's concerned enough to address the issue expressly. A radical condemnation that, that really doesn't hint at any hope. And a, a radical repentance that, that results in a radical relenting. I mean, could you imagine if tomorrow the breaking headline isn't us blaming someone else for the evil outside of us, the, the latest shooting or, or, or the latest immigration issue, but Donald Trump tomorrow is in the Capitol building doing a press conference with the entire Congress behind him, all bipartisan, whatnot, announcing how they had collectively fallen under the conviction of God. Could you imagine That we as a, a country sit like all others under the condemnation of God. That our prosperity has merely been a byproduct of the patience of God. But that the word of God has convinced them that the patience of God will not last forever. And that they were calling our nation, president and Congress alike, 
not to the next economic boom or the next health care reform or the next policy on foreign relations, but to tear our clothes and sit with them in the ash heap. With us and our kids and our pets. Could you imagine? Because of our offensiveness to Almighty God. That maybe just, maybe just, God would turn from what we so rightly deserve. Maybe we should pray for that. That's what this story is. The, the, the most pagan nation on earth, the most violent nation on earth, the ones who had gone the furthest into serving themselves, into, into sex trafficking and, and slaughtering their neighbors. The ones who had the technology and put everybody else under it. Now, maybe we should pray for that. This is radical. What would the tweet be? This is going to be huge. <laughs> best repentance. Best repentance ever. Could you imagine? Yet that's what this is. That's what this is. That's the picture here in Jonah. A radical command expressed through a radical condemnation that leads to a radical repentance which results wonder of wonders, not because it has to, but because of the type of God he is in God's radical relenting from carrying out what we so rightly deserve. All from the structure. You jump back in, artists, like right here. Oh! But all from the structure. What then, fifthly, is the main idea and direction this passage is driving? We've seen the bridge. Now, where does it want to take us? And here's where it's especially helpful to remember that this is just one scene in a larger story. So that what unfolds here in chapter 2 follows what we've already found, chapter 3, follows what we've already found in chapter 2. That the radical repentance of the Ninevites here is the foil to the quasi-repentance, the would-be repentance, the, the show up like it's a new season, still have a 500 record, nothing's really changed repentance of Jonah. It's a bear's joke, by the way. But seriously. Because the main idea of this passage is that it, it's the corrective lens to Jonah's prayer that, that came right before this. Remember where he landed? Remember where he landed? I know, I know this is hard to swallow, has been hard to swallow for some, but remember where Jonah landed? Turn back to Jonah chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Listen to this. 
Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And here's God saying that while the idolater forsakes their hope of steadfast love, true as that may be, the God of steadfast love does not forsake the hope of the idolater. That's salvation. Like the the storm in chapter 1 in the hearts of the sailors. Like the swallowing up of Jonah and the spitting out of Jonah. Like the sending of his messenger and the staying of his hand. That salvation belongs to the Lord. Which is evident at every point. Whether in the radical command to to preach against Nineveh or even the radical condemnation that carries the implicit call to come back. Whether the radical repentance that is itself an act of grace or the radical relenting that is grace all the more poured out. That's the bridge. That's the bridge. And when you walk across and get to the other side, there's one question. How far would you go? How far would you go to get back to the God you had previously run from? Not how far you would go to get away. That's chapter 1. How far you have gone to get away. But how far would you go to get back? Not that we can get back on our own, but, but let me suggest that the contrast between the Ninevites here and Jonah, especially in chapter 1, suggests that we ought to run to God as fast and as furiously as we ever ran from Him. That the only reasonable response in the face of God's immeasurable grace and kindness towards us or His patience is not giving us what, and not giving us what we, we deserve, but, but knowing that, that, that what we deserve will come if somehow the equation does not change. That to, for those of us who, who realize there's nowhere left to run, that for those of us who realize that, that, that we can't get away, For those for whom grace has finally caught up, caught us by the knees, taken us down, covered us over, that there is only one reasonable response. That we run back as fast and as furiously as we ever ran from. at the ridiculous lengths to which we go to get away would be matched by the ridiculous lengths we go to come right back to his arms. I mean, just look at the verbs that describe what this king does in leading his people. Focusing on this, right? Largest section of the chapter probably a hint there. This is the important piece for us to grab hold before we get to the resolution. 
Look at the verbs. And after just a five-word sermon, not before the verbs, it seems like at least Jonah's obeying. I don't think, though, this is what God meant. I don't think this is what God had in mind. Now, Jonah, come here. We're going to send you in 500 miles, five words. That's all I want. Go in, drop the mic, leave. It's done. When does God ever use five words? Really? Obadiah is the shortest prophetic book of the Old Testament. Over 400 words. When does God ever use five words? But look, after a five-word sermon, 40 days, kiss it goodbye, consider yourselves warned, merciful God. Look at this. Look at these words that describe the king. Verse 6. First, it says that the word reached him, which implies that he was ready to listen. Had his ears perked up. Probably a historical reason for that. Syria was going through some hard stuff at the time. Had his ears perked up. Not only that, it says that he then arose from his throne. Think about that. When does a king ever arise from his throne? Think about it, wives. When does your husband ever arise from his throne? Sunday afternoon, watching a football game. Oh, have mercy if he ends up in a different throne. They never arise. No. He arises. Here he is because he's heard the word of God and and the grace behind the condemnation. And he rises to do something about it. it. It says he removes his robe. He removes any sense of being better than anyone else. And he then clothes himself in sackcloth like everybody else as a symbol of his same state before God. It says he sits in the ashes and then proclaims and publishes the decree for everyone else to do the same. What's your response been? Just take it a personal checkup to the patience and deserved judgment of God. How much more since that judgment's been dealt with in Jesus? As a king himself who stepped off that throne, took off his robe, stepped into the ash heap of our world. Not for himself, but for us. So that the direction this scene is driving is that we would not only share God's heart to get to the Ninevites, but reflect in our own hearts how far they went to get to God. Because it's a reflection of how far God's gone to get to us with his word. And how far he's gone to get us to him with his son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as we leave this place that we would do so with a great burden of the judgment we so rightly sit under.
apart from you. And the great freedom that helps us stand because that judgment's been dealt with in Jesus. I pray that we would hear and hear alike of how you've turned to us with your word and turned to us in your Son. And that hearing, we would become heralds for the fame of your Son through the spread of your word. Amen. I'll say a special greetings to Matt and Carly. Glad to have you with us today. Good to be an extended family. Thank God for the Ninevites. What example they are of at least for this point in their history of running back to a God that they may never have heard before. And yet back they came because God turned first to them. Pray we would never doubt. Never doubt that there is no way for us to run outside the grace of God while life is still in our lungs. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.